<laughs> Parents, I hope that someday you have the opportunity to be led in worship by your children. There is nothing sweeter. And we were just fellowshipping with the Kimbers earlier this week and reflecting back on about four or five years ago. Maybe it's longer than that ago now, but 2008. That was a time when we would gather as elders and beg the Lord to get a hold of Jesse's heart. He was not seeking him. He was not following his ways. His heart seemed hard and not soft. And this morning, I think we caught a glimpse of how the Lord can hear a prayer, answer a prayer, send forth his spirit, and quicken unto life one that seems cold, one that seems dead. So parents, those of you who are out there in various stages of parental bliss, dealing with the joys and the sorrows of parenting, keep praying for your kids. That's all I can tell you. The sovereign Lord of this universe will hear you, and by His grace, He may answer those prayers beyond your wildest imagination. So I am grateful uh, that He has done that for us. Uh, My family and I, we're not native Southern Californians. We come from a place that has a lot of snow. And this is one of those winters where we're hearing a lot about what's going on back east with snow, right? Piles and piles and piles of snow. We certainly had our experience of that. When I was in elementary school, we would get to, uh, I'd get off the bus, I'd rode the bus about 40 minutes in the morning to get to elementary school, and we'd get off and there would be a recess. It didn't matter if it was zero out or whatever, we were all bundled up, right? And they had pushed the parking lot clear of snow into a huge pile. So, of course, what do kids do before school? We climb that pile of snow, right? And we've got a little picture of something of that sort here. You see this huge pile of snow and that cute, I think it's a girl. You know, when you're all bundled up, it's gender disappears, (laughs) right? So I'm guessing with the pink hat that it's probably a girl, but um, she's up there on top excited about her position there on top. Well, when we would climb those snow piles, we played a game called King of the Hill, right? Our goal was, anybody ever play that game? Yeah, a few, you're right. So you get up there, right? And you, what's the goal of the game? Yeah, to keep everybody else off and to stay up there, to own it, I think you said. To, to be king of that hill, to exercise your sovereign domain up there, right? And dominion. And the way we played it, there, there were, you could make up the rules. If you were up there, what you said goes. So if you wanted a friend to be up there with you so that you could face back to back and ward off uh, usurpers to your throne, you could a little bit more effectively, right? So the goal was, yeah, to exercise dominion and domain authority over that hill. So when the, when the school bell rang and it was time to go in for class, uh, the one who had remained up there on the top was called king of the hill. Now, similarly to that, Mark has been teaching us through his gospel so far that Jesus is king of the hill, right? He's the one who is exercising sovereign domain and authority. And he's showing that through progressive stories, right? We have seen Mark explain to us that Jesus comes on the scene preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in a way that's unique, Uh, those who hear him say he teaches with authority, not like the scribes. He's not just a learned man, but there's authority in the way he teaches. We see him silence demons, cast them out. We see him exercise authority over infirmity, sicknesses, fevers, things like that. Um, We also see him exercise authority to forgive sins on earth. 
So slowly, Mark is revealing to us that this man, Jesus, has divine authority. And we have taken, in in chapter 4 of Mark, where we've been for the last several weeks, we have been camping out and listening to Jesus teaching about the kingdom, teaching parables, what the kingdom of God is like. And now we're returning at the tail end of chapter 4, and Mark is going to show us that Jesus is, he has authority. He's king of at least three hills here on this earth. Today he's going to show us that Jesus is king of the hill over the natural world. He has sovereign, divine authority over nature. We're going to see that Jesus has divine authority over the demonic world, over the spiritual forces of darkness. And he'll show us that Jesus has authority over those he has redeemed or delivered from the perils of nature and from the perils of unclean spirits. So that's our rough outline for this morning. Jesus is king over nature, over demons, and over the redeemed. So before we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 4, actually you can open there, but before we begin to read from there, let's pray to this one who has all this authority and ask his blessing on our time together. Father, what a privilege it is to gather here as your people and to worship you in spirit and in truth like we have this morning. Thank you for your word that you have preserved and for how Jesse and the team have been careful to expose us to your word in unique ways so that we can meditate on these truths about who you are. Thank you, Lord, for the lyrics of the songs that have shepherded our hearts and helped our eyes to come from our own circumstances and up onto you, the one who has all divine authority. And now as we open your word, we pray that you would send forth your spirit, that you would give us ears to hear just like those faithful hearers in the parables, Lord, that we would hear and we would respond faithfully and we would allow you to change us. So, Father, um, we ask these things in faith, trusting and believing. We ask them in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So let's begin reading at Mark chapter 4 at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher! Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind And the sea obey him. And this question that the disciples ask in the boat with Jesus, after he has just calmed the wind, and after he has just caused the waves to turn into a great calm, this question, who then is this, is the question that we'll be seeking to answer today. And from what we have just read, we see the answer to that question is, who then is this? Is that this man, Jesus, is Lord over nature. He has authority over the, spirit, uh, over, uh, the natural world, if you will. 
The wind and the waves even obey him. Let's look at verse 35. On that day. What day is that? That's the day of chapter 4, right? It started in chapter 4, and Tom brought that portion of the word to us. He started teaching these people in parables at the beginning of the chapter. And that chapter entails most of a day where Jesus has been teaching and preaching. He's been sowing seeds of the word diligently to the crowds. And at the same time, he's been pulling his disciples aside because they ask questions about these parables and they wonder, what do these parables mean? And he diligently takes them aside and he teaches them as well. So it's on that day when evening had come, Jesus says to them, let's go to the other side. We don't understand exactly what it is that drove Jesus to make this decision, but it was time in his determination to go from that place to the other side of the lake. So they get in the boat. The boat. That's a particular boat. I think it's the same boat that Jesus got into in verse 1 of chapter 4. He got into a boat and sat in it on the sea so that he could teach. So I think they get in that same boat and they decide to take off across the sea according to Jesus' desire. Let's go across to the other side. And the other boats were with him. And while they're out there, a great windstorm arose, and things get pretty rough out there, right? So this man, Jesus, just as he was, in the midst of this storm, he is asleep on the cushion in the rear of the boat. How could he be asleep in the cushion at the rear of the boat? Is there another image that comes to mind of a biblical character who is asleep in a boat in the midst of a storm? Jonah, yeah. The story of Jonah is is that God, Jonah's a prophet, God had called him to a specific task. He was to go to Nineveh and proclaim that 40 days in that town was going to be overthrown by God. Jonah didn't like that assignment from God, so he decided he would go as far away from that place as he could. He gets into a boat, and he falls asleep in the bottom of the boat. Why? To escape his disobedience from the direct call of the Lord. Is that why Jesus is asleep on the boat? No, it's the exact opposite. Jesus is asleep in the back of this boat in the midst of this storm because he's been that faithful farmer who's been scattering seed all day, and he's exhausted. We see here a picture of Jesus' humanity. He has been teaching and preaching, explaining to a great crowd of people all day with sidebar conversations to his disciples to help them understand the things that were cryptic a little bit because of the parables, right? And at the end of the day, he's just flat out tired. We see Jesus and his comprehension and understanding here of the weakness of humanity. And he just lays down in that cushion in the back of the boat and falls dead asleep. My wife would tell you that I know this sleep a few times. Uh, At the end of the day, probably my favorite word is, I'm so tired. (laughs) And I'll fall asleep on the couch and take my pre-bed nap on the couch for about an hour and a half before I get up and go to bed and then sleep the rest of the night there. But some of you, I'm sure, know this too, right? Some of you are teachers. Some of you, you know, we all have this vocation that we're involved in. And we know what it means to faithfully apply ourselves to the work that God gives us to do, whether it's motherhood or teaching or uh, operating machines or engineering or 
looking through spreadsheets as a businessman, whatever the task might be, you know what it's like to have faithfully completed the tasks of your day and come to the end of your day and just want to put your feet up and lay your head down. And that's, I think, what we see here is we see Jesus in his full humanity exhausted after a day of work. And in his exhaustion, look at verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Wind is something we don't get a lot of here in Southern California. Some of you would argue with me, but I come from the Midwest where the wind blows full force almost all the time. A calm day is a treat. Most of the time, it's windy. 20, 25, 30 miles an hour is, is typical up there. And I can remember in the summertime baling hay. As a farmer, there's, a, there's, a, <laughs> there's a, an idiom that you say, you make hay while the sun shines. So the goal is obviously to get your hay baled up before the rain comes. So we were out in the, in the field baling hay one afternoon and the clouds begin to get darker and darker. And here they come and I'm operating the baler and I've got a, a, another fellow worker ahead of me with the rake bringing the hay that's been spread out all mowed down in the, in the uh, pasture, bringing it into what we call a windrow Right? That's the width of the baler so that you can drive the baler over it and, and package it up, preserve it for that next winter's feed. So I'm driving and all of a sudden this intense wind comes up where this beautiful row of hay in front of me is now gone. It's just gone. And the, the rain began to pound down and so we transitioned quickly out of the tractor into the pickup and began to drive our way home because it was clear that this was not going to be a short storm, but it was going to be serious. And we ended up having to pull off the side of the road because we couldn't see. Um, tree branches were flying. I mean, it was a torrential storm. It was scary, something over which I had no control, right? When we finally did arrive home, I got there and pulled into my front yard. And the, you know what a swing set is, right? A little, little stig poles, right? There isn't a lot of wind surface on a swing set. That had flipped over in the yard and, and moved about 30 yards down into another part of our lawn. And it was just a terribly powerful storm. It was freaky. Well, that's something akin to what these disciples are facing, but they're out on the water. And what happens to water when you apply wind to it? waves, right? And, and the story is clear here that the waves are already filling the boat. So this is a scary situation, something that the disciples recognize is perilous for them. They're experienced fishermen, right? Jesus called fishermen and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they're in this boat in this very familiar environment to them. And there's something unusual about this storm that has them freaked out. And what's their next move? They go to Jesus, verse 38, who was asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Here's another picture of the weakness of humanity. Did they ask him for help? Not really. They just accused him that he doesn't care because he's asleep, right? Some of you parents, this might make some sense to you because our kids are prone to that sort of thing. If we withhold any good thing that they perceive from them, they will accuse us of not caring for them because we've said no to whatever it is that they want. 
And here we see the, dis the disciples' weakness in their humanity. They're obviously afraid, and rightfully so, because there's a terrible wind blowing and there are huge waves that are already filling the boat. It, the text doesn't tell us that they doubted Jesus' ability to do something about it. It seems like it's very clear that they're doubting his willingness to do something about this. And they accuse him, do you not care? How many of us in, in the perils of our circumstances of daily life ha have the same response to God, right? We know he can do something about it, but we wonder if he will. We wonder if he cares enough. I think that might even hold us back from asking in prayer, right? There's something twisted about the human mind that it seems safer to not ask God to deliver us from something than to ask and be disappointed because he may not choose to answer in that way. Whatever the case is going on here, the disciples, they're afraid and they go to Jesus, which is good, right? You want to be looking to Jesus in the midst of a scary circumstance, but what they bring to him is an accusation. Do you not care? Do you not care that we are about to perish? And what does Jesus do in the face of that accusation? Verse 39, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. We've seen this vocabulary earlier in the book of Mark, haven't we? Who or what has Jesus rebuked? Demons. Yeah, Jesus speaks to the demons, he rebukes them, and they obey. And here, Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves in a way as though he's talking to a person, a personal entity. Now, we have no indication in here, in this passage, that the wind and the waves have gotten to this level because of the spiritual forces of darkness. We don't have reason to believe that. But Jesus does, and it's a mystery, he approaches them, he speaks to them with an authoritative vocal command. And they obey. And the wind ceased, and the waves there was a great calm. So Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves, and they obey. Who then is this? Who can speak a word and anything in nature obey? Only God. Listen to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, beginning at verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind. God commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Only God can speak forth an authoritative command and have 
nature obey him. So this man, Jesus, who we've just seen a clear understanding and demonstration of his human weakness in that he fell asleep in exhaustion on the tail of a faithful day of farming, of sowing the seed of the word, this man now awakens and he speaks forth an authoritative word of command to nature and nature obeys. Only God can do that. Jesus is fully man and he's fully God and he's revealing that here to his disciples. Jesus speaks forth a word, peace, be still. And the wind ceases and the roaring waves roll over in humble submission to him, similar to a dog to his master. We have a dog in our house. Her name is Nala. She is a cute little puppy and she is really full of the dickens. Um, I, I call her a terrible dog. <laughs> She's young and you know what puppies do. They like to chew on everything, right? I have a beautiful black leather bind on my Bible because she decided to make a snack out of the first one. And Katie Tuttle was generous to put this on here for me, which is awesome. So if you need a Bible rebound, talk to Katie. Um, she, she chews on everything. And you never know when you come home at the end of a day, what are you going to find? Will she have gotten something she shouldn't have gotten and turned it into a snack? Or what's, what's it going to be? One week, or one day this week, I came home I was the first one to arrive home, and I opened the door, and I started talking to Nala. I said, hello, Nala. Were you a good girl today? How are you? And this is what she did. She met me in this way. <laughs> she, she rolled over onto her back, and she just sat there and waited for me to scratch her tummy. So... Um, yeah, Jesus speaks a word of command and the wind ceases. The waves that were raging roll over onto their back in humble submission to their master. Only Jesus has authority over the, the natural world. This man, Jesus, is fully God. And when he speaks an authoritative command, the natural world submits. Mark has been progressively showing answers to this question. Who then is this? He's been talking about this authority that Jesus has. He has just shown us that Jesus is Lord over the natural world, and now he's about to show us that Jesus is Lord over the spiritual world as well. Look with me at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, 
What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Jesus is Lord over demons. He gives them permission and they go from this man where he gives them permission to go, into the swine. There's a couple things that we notice here as, as a sub-point to the fact that Jesus is Lord over demons. We also learn some things about humanity. We learn that people can be significantly influenced by demons. Look at verses uh, 2 through 5. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs. This man lives in a place where dead people are gathered. That's not a normal place for people to live, right? This is not a normal existence, the way that we understand it. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. This man had superhuman strength. Chains and shackles were used to restrain him, and it seems as though at one point they were effective at doing that. Apparently this man was destructive. He was, he was chaotic. Wherever he went, there was trouble, so it seemed like people were trying to protect themselves by restraining him with chains and shackles, and it used to be effective, but not anymore. He would wrench the chains apart, and he would break the shackles into pieces, and the summary statement sums it up. No one had strength to subdue him. This man, under the influence of demons, has superhuman strength. He's isolated. He's living among the tombs. And he cries out night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He cries out and he cuts himself with stones. He is continuing to be destructive to himself. The summary understanding of this is that this man is in a desperate and a scary situation. He seems out of control. As uncontrollable as the wind and the waves were, in the story of Jesus exercising his dominion over nature, all this force of chaos, all this force of, of scariness and danger is now embodied in a man. And he is in a place where he cannot help himself, and it seems like nobody else can help him either. They've tried. So now what, what happens? He's in isolation. He's all alone. And that's such a ploy of the enemy, isn't it? He will take the weak sheep and bring them off to the side, just like wolves hunting a pack. They'll prey on the weak, the young, the sick. They'll bring them off to the side, get them isolated away from the protection of the flock or the herd so that they can prey on them. Humans can be significantly impacted and influenced by unclean spirits. That sounds a bit extreme to us, right? Have you ever seen a person in this condition? Tom's nodding his head yes. 
most of us probably are shaking our head no. We just don't see a lot of this. But the fact is, is that all of us can identify with this guy. That's the testimony of the Scriptures. None of us knows freedom from the influence of the spiritual forces of darkness. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll begin reading there at verse 1. And you... Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus. He's talking to all of them. And he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins and whence you what? Walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Those are unclean spirits, right? That's the, God's enemy, Satan and his devils. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we may not have been in a situation that is described as this man here in Mark chapter 5. But we have all been under the influence of the enemy. We were all dead, children of wrath, before God reached in and made us alive together with Christ. So as we look at this man who is filled and oppressed by a legion of demons, we can't look at him as though he is something vastly different than us. For we all have... We know the same illness. It just varies by degree. It's not different by kind. It varies by degree. So if we're going to identify with someone in this story, let's identify with the man who knows the oppression of the demons. Another thing that we can learn about humanity is that people who are under the influence of the spiritual forces of darkness can still come to Jesus. Jesus gets out of the boat, onto the land, and this man sees him from afar and runs to him and throws himself down on his feet, on his face before Jesus' feet. Now we've seen this before, right? Every time we see the demons show up, they submit to Jesus. They fall down at his feet. They cry out true things about his identity as the Son of God. And that is the case here. Verse 6, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? That's a true profession. That's who Jesus is. The demon, demons recognize that. They know who Jesus is. And they know that they are subordinate to the authority of Jesus. And Using this man's body, they take their place under Jesus' authority by falling on their face at Jesus' feet. So even people who are under the influence of unclean spirits can come to Jesus. And we see here clearly that Jesus has supreme authority over the spiritual world. They already, when they come to Jesus, they profess who He is and they begin to beg Him, please don't torment us. They know that Jesus can. They don't doubt His authority. They know that they're defeated. And they beg Him, please don't torment us. Don't, don't send us out of the region. Now might be a good time to think a little bit about this region. They're, they're in the Decapolis, which is not a Jewish region. It is more of a Gentile region. Okay, 
So there's something going on here about these spiritual unclean spirits. They want to remain in this region. We also see that it's an unclean or a Gentile region because there's a, a large herd of pigs here. And swine are unclean animals, so you wouldn't find them being raised over in the, in the Jewish communities, right? So this is a, a unique region, and for some reason, these unclean spirits don't want to be sent away from this region. So they beg that that wouldn't happen, and they desire to actually to be sent into the pigs. And they beg Jesus to send them into the pigs. And Jesus, we don't even get a direct command from Jesus. It just says that he gave them permission, and they go. Jesus has authority over the spiritual, unclean world. Jesus has authority over the demons. And when he gives permission, they go. And they go into a herd of pigs. 2,000 pigs. And the pigs then, under the influence of the demons, rush down the bank and are drowned in the sea. So the unclean spirits, at Jesus' command, go into unclean animals which then rush down the bank and find their ultimate end in the very sea that Jesus had just delivered his disciples from. That's an interesting, interesting thing that is happening here. Jesus has exercised his authority over the natural world by calming the wind and the waves. And now he exercises his authority over the demonic world by sending them, according to their own request, into the swine. And this is a significant loss for the swine herders. I looked up today's prices, and a herd of 2,000 swine would value around $350,000 to $400,000. So that's a pretty significant business hit that these people just suffered, right? Alistair Begg, in his message on this passage, says that we can learn one thing from this. It's that the soul of one man is worth far more than 2,000 pigs. How do you put a price tag on the price of a soul of a man? But Jesus clearly does. He grants the demon's request, and they go according to Jesus' word. And Jesus delivers this man from his helpless state. Now, you look at the helpless state that this man was in. He's isolated. He's got superhuman strength, and nobody can stand to be around him. So he just lives among the tombs. He's harming himself all the time. He's in a desperate, desperate place. And Jesus delivers him from the influence of demons over him. Now, if Jesus can do that for that man, whatever you're facing, Jesus can deliver you from that too. Whatever it is that you walked in here with on the forefront of your mind, longing for the Lord to deliver you from that, He can. He has the divine authority to do that. And you can bet that he not only can, but that he's willing, but it is, I'm sorry, not a guarantee that he will. He loves you, and he will never take you to a place where he will abandon you. He is with you. He is for you. And he has divine authority to meet you at your deepest need. Jesus is Lord over the demons. And he has redeemed this man. So if Jesus is Lord over nature, 
and he is Lord over the demons, Mark is going to show us in the subsequent chapters that Jesus is marching his way toward the cross. And if Jesus is Lord over nature and Lord over the unclean spirits, that means when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes willingly. He doesn't go because any demons are forcing him to go there. He doesn't go because of any human power, because humans fall under the natural world order, right? So Jesus has supreme sovereign authority over humans and the will of humans. So whether it's human will or demonic will, neither of those can force Jesus to go to the cross. He goes willingly. And there on the cross, having lived a perfect life, he makes perfect sacrifice for sin, satisfying the wrath of God once and for all for the sins of this former demoniac, for the sins of you and for the sins of me. Jesus is Lord over the natural world. He's Lord over the spiritual world. And therefore, He is Lord over the redeemed. Those that He delivers from the perils of nature and those that He delivers from the perils of the spiritual forces of darkness. He is Lord Lord over you and over me. And He has every right then to be able to command to us and expect a faithful response. And that is what we see back again in chapter 4. Jesus was clearly expecting a response of faith from his disciples when they were with him in the boat, the storm-tossed boat there on the sea. Listen to his words. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Another way to translate that word that is translated afraid is cowardly. Why are you so cowardly? Have you still no faith? Jesus was clearly looking to them to display faith. What would a faithful response have looked like? Well, faith is a tangible expression of personal trust in Jesus. Mark has used this word, translated faith, one other time earlier in Mark, and that is in chapter 2 when those four guys carry the, the paralytic on a pallet and they approach Jesus. There's so many people there in the house that they can't approach him. So what do they do? They unroof the roof and let this man down in front of Jesus because they knew that Jesus would do something about this. And the text says, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the man. So faith is a tangible expression of personal trust in Christ. So the disciples in that storm-tossed boat with him should have approached him recognizing that he could do something about it. And instead of accusing him that he didn't care, they could have said, Lord, please deliver us. What does an unfaithful response look like? Mark shows us one here in in chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. An unfaithful response to knowledge that Jesus' authority, he has Lord and sovereign authority over the natural world and the demonic world. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. 
An unfaithful response is one where you see the work of God. You see His display of sovereign authority over nature, with the natural world. You see the sovereign authority of Jesus in the spiritual world. And you say, no thanks. I have seen your authority. I have heard your claims. I've seen evidence that it is true. No thanks. And they beg Him to leave their region. The kingdom of God shows up in the Decapolis and it costs some swine herders their, their herd. It costs the, the town people that herd as well. And they say, you have disrupted our lives. You have disrupted our business. We want no more of you. Be gone. And they beg him to leave. So that's an unfaithful response. What does a faithful response look like? to Jesus' authoritative claims. Read with me from Mark 5, beginning at verse 18. As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, so they beg him to leave, and he answers their request. That's the scary thing I want to warn you about. If you see God show up, and you end up not submitting your life to him, but say, no, go away from me, at some point he will. And he will leave you there in in your sin. And at one point, it'll be too late. Now we have a merciful, loving, gracious God. So when he shows up in your life, I beg you, please don't send him away. Submit to his lordship. The people of the Decapolis beg Jesus to depart, and he does. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who has been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Where have we heard that phrase before? That he might be with him. Yeah, Jesus calling the disciples. That's a faithful response, right? That's a, that's a good thing for this man to desire. He wants to be with Jesus. That's a sign of spiritual life. This man begs Jesus, I want to be with you. That's a faithful response. And Jesus, it says in verse 19, did not permit him, but said to him, go home. To your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The delivered man obediently became a witness to the sovereign authority of Jesus in his life. He didn't, Jesus didn't grant this man's request to be with him, to, to join with the other disciples and to be one of his inner circle of disciples. Instead, Jesus says, no, go home. Go to that place that you haven't been able to be at for a while because of where the spiritual forces of darkness have kept you. Be restored to your people, the people that you know. Go on mission and tell them about me. Tell them the story of how you once were under the influence of an army of demons but how Jesus delivered you from that. Tell of, my, tell of my story, tell of my glory, Jesus said. In other words, he says, go home and sow seeds. Sow seeds of the kingdom. Go to that familiar place and tell your story of what Jesus has done for you. And check out how this mustard seed grows. Look at verse 20. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Everyone is marveling 
at this man's testimony of what Jesus had done for him. And it's apparently effective too, because we'll turn the page over to chapter 7 of Mark. In verse 31, Jesus, after healing this man, he goes back across the lake and goes on mission in other Jewish territories. And here at the end of chapter 7, he comes back to the Decapolis. Then he returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon and the Sea of Galilee and in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Who's they? We don't know. Some people from the Decapolis. The last we saw of these people is they were begging Jesus to go away. Jesus leaves one man, plants a mustard seed in the Decapolis, tells him to to sow seed, leaves one man, and when he comes back, there is they, a group of people who bring somebody to Jesus, apparently believing that Jesus can do something about this man's affliction. The seeds of the kingdom have been sown, and that mustard seed is beginning to grow in the Decapolis. Jesus has divine authority over nature. He has divine authority over the spiritual forces of darkness. And He has obviously divine authority over those He redeems from such forces. What does the law require? Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. Jesus, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, Jesus has delivered you from the domain of darkness, from the influence of demons. He's delivered you from the death of spiritual death, from darkness into light. You are the redeemed. Back to Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He redeems us and He commissions us as missionaries. He commissions us as witnesses. We don't need to know all the theology. We just need to know how much Jesus has done for us and to go not to that far away place necessarily, but to go home to our friends, to our family, to the people that we normally interact with anyway and tell them how much Jesus has done for us. And He'll take it from there. So where are you today? What are you faced with? I want to encourage you that whatever it is you're up against, Jesus is sovereign Lord over those circumstances. Look to Him. Don't accuse Him of not caring. But look to Him, believing that He can deliver you, and ask Him to do that. And when He does, return to your people and tell how much the Lord has done. Let's be a people who grow as faithful witnesses here at Grace Fullerton of what the Lord has done to deliver us from so great a peril. Let's spend a couple of minutes in silence right now. And I just want, I want you to listen to the Spirit. And in light of what we've learned today through Mark's Gospel, ask Him what, what faithful response looks like for you. Right where you are. Jesse's going to come up. The team will come up. Put a little bit of silent, soft background music on. I'll close us in a couple of minutes. And then we'll respond together in worship.